Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Are you new here? Are you here for Phil? Have you come for Phil? Because this guest that I have today is not the usual guest I have. This is sort of like uh, something uh, Brendan and I talked about, and uh, he is... uh, essential in the history of cinema and what he represents is essential i'll explain it let me explain that who i'm talking about is phil tippett and i'll get to that in a second so let's talk about i you know i've been doing comedy a long time and uh it's 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 much longer than i anticipated you know even being alive to some degree and it's you know i want I, i came up with something it's funny because it's rare that you, like, out of nowhere delivered something. I don't even know how to explain it, but I was like, oh, my God. Someone has ha- has to have found this before. It's hard sometimes to talk about issues or or sort of controversial things in a way that's not either, you know, dickish or self-righteous. Sometimes both, depending on what side you're coming at them from. And it's just rare that you're given a gift of something from the comedy muse where you're like, oh my God, this is right. This is the pocket. This is like, this is an angle that I haven't heard on something that everyone has talked about, but not enough men actually talk about this. But I was just thinking about, you know, guns. I was thinking about abortion. I was thinking about these ideas and these issues and these terrible things that are going on in our country around, you know, rights and, and also, you, you know, murder, but I was thinking about the abortion debate and the idea of choice. And obviously, I am a proponent of choice. I believe all women should have the right to choose whatever they need to do with their bodies. It's their body. And they should have the right and it should be legal to do so. It should not be infringed upon. So right now, you know, given that we are living in what is becoming a minority rule country and that there are radicalized right wing governments in about half the states, you know, the shit is going down. And I, I just was trying to figure out how to frame it. You know, how do you get a joke out of it? And I just thought, well, look, obviously all women have should have the right to make choices for their own body. And I think maybe it's a branding problem in terms of dealing with the with the Christian right and their their taking over of the dialogue. It's just that, you know, abortion clinics sounds very brutal, very clinical. 
and uh, it's easy to make it sort of um, seem menacing. Whereas, like maybe if we called them something like uh, angel factories, there'd be a different dialogue because then it would sort of put the ball in the Christian's court that they're angel factories. Because if you think about it, like once they're born, it's a crapshoot. But these are guaranteed angels. So I think maybe if we could sort of push that out into the world, the type of Christians that would be out in front of a, an abortion clinic, the ones that are, were used to just hold signs and horrible pictures and terrify people, maybe they'd be celebrating. You could literally maybe put a counter on the building that has a bell to it. And every time an abortion is done, it's just a, a number pops up and a bell rings and a group of Christians out in front just start clapping. You know, when the bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Goodbye. Fly away. So the idea of Angel Factory came to me, and I'm like, oh, fuck. I got to text Dave Cross. <laughs> and I, text, I texted Lori Kilmartin. I texted Pat, and I'm like, anything? Any, anyone hear of this Angel Factory business? Because I, I came up with this, and I, I've tried it a couple times, and I think it's a keeper, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great little poetic thing. Anybody? And no one had heard it, and people were, you know, they, they were happy for me. But Patton's like, you better ask Attell and ask Stanhope. Like, it was funny to me that there was like, only a handful of people that would come up with it. But then somebody on Instagram said that there was a, that, uh, I think when bor- abortion was illegal in Germany, or maybe it didn't, I, I didn't get the context, but abortion doctors were called Angelmachers, uh, angel makers. So that does, but that's fine. Um, that's a good source. I think it was in, uh, you know, in the 30s, or I, I know nothing about it. Anyway, just letting you in on the process. And I'm pretty excited about Angel Factories. So let me let me tell you about Phil Tippett. Okay, Phil Tippett, if you don't know, and, and I didn't know much of this, and I, I, I had to research him. He's an Oscar and Emmy-winning visual effects artist. He's responsible for some of the most memorable effects in movies like Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, RoboCop, and his work is almost always rooted in stop-motion animation. This is what he is. He's a stop-motion animation guy. Like, you know, the big elephant looking walkers from Empire Strikes Back. Those are Phil's designs. Uh, He's worked for ILM and DreamWorks, but he also has his own studio that's been doing visual effects for like, like on all sorts of shit since the 80s. But here's the deal. For the past 30 years, 30 years, he's been working on this personal project. It's a feature film. It's his first feature film. It's called Mad God. And and now it's finally complete. And it's insane. It's a full-length feature film of this apocalyptic journey, or maybe a couple of journeys, through this like apocalyptic landscape with all these dark, dark jokes and all these figures. There's all kinds of stop-motion you know, buildings and figures and industrial stuff and gooey stuff and hairy stuff and gloppy stuff. And you know, there's, there's blood and guts and, and metal and weird sounds. It's future. It's past. It's like, it's, it's almost... There's a prophecy in it. It's it's everything this guy has ever had in his head, you know, dumped into this movie. And it's so elaborate and so meticulously composed and, and layered. It's insane. And it sent him to the fucking hospital finishing this thing. But now you can watch it. And it reminded me of those kind of animation things you used to see in the 70s where it was almost like it's obviously trippy. But it's like, you know, it, it's, it's like it's Harryhausen on acid and more. You know, there's just like there there's so many layers to it. And it's so fascinating to watch and to know that it is the life's work, a labor of, of love. And uh, it's done. 
And I and you know when I talked to Phil, it was all I wanted to talk about. Because I said, like, I'm not a sci-fi freak, and you know, I know what he's done, and I'm impressed with it, but this movie was where I wanted to go with him. We got into it, but you can watch it. You can watch Mad God on the streaming service Shudder, which you can subscribe to on its own or as part of uh, AMC+. It starts streaming on June 16th, and it's also going to have a theatrical release starting this week, Friday, June 10th. There are screenings all over the country, so you can go to madgodmovie.com to find one near you. That's madgodmovie.com to find a screening. And you you got to see it. You, if you're a little bit of a sci-fi person, man, it's not a horror movie. It, this is like, a, it's a stop motion masterpiece. Seriously. So I'm going to get into it here with, uh, with Phil Tippett and... Um, I think we got into a groove, man. There, there's a couple beautiful moments, and you know he's a, he's a real artist, this guy, and, and it was an honor to talk. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Wanting get the most out of what you read the foxed page is for you get it now wherever you get your podcasts to him i'm, I'm glad you're here and i gotta I, i'll be up front with you in that um i'm not a huge sci-fi guy it's not sci-fi i know i watched the whole thing and i'm not a huge uh, animation guy even but like i watched the the movie and it it's like uh this possessed masterpiece that i can see i know it took you a long time to make but it reminded me it i i had a lot of uh, emotions around it hmm. as a piece of art in a way and i don't think that i i really made the connection of how pure that type of animation is in relation to the medium of film. Like there doesn't seem to, like that it, it reveals the organic nature of what film is unlike anything else. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I don't know that I've had that experience before in making that connection. And I think it's only relative to, you know, seeing movies now or knowing what the technologies that exist now are that I could really, there, there's almost an organic, you can feel the humanity of it. Of the of that medium, yeah. Well, you can see that in the films of Carl Zeman and Jans Fankmeyer uh -huh. and you know, you know, others, uh, Jerry Trinka, uh -huh. you know. Um, but nobody watches that stuff anymore. But they're really Carl Zeman's. Just he was a huge influence on me. And and where's he from? Czechoslovakian. And and is he still around? Nope. Nope. No, I kick myself because I was a huge fan of his. He was highly recommend that you watch his uh, movies. Not many 
in the States, but, uh-huh. um, you know, the fabulous world of Jules Verne oh, yeah. and um, Baron Munchausen, he would use any kind of technique that he possibly could and just carry it through with continuity. Yeah. There'd be a lot of miss and match, miss and match but it didn't matter. Yeah, you know? right. But there was also this sensibility that, not because because I don't really exist in that world of, of animation, but, you know, I do exist in the world nostalgically or, or just in terms of who... Uh, I was uh, moved by as, as a younger person of of kind of um, the hallucinogenic sensibility, the the kind of beatnik sensibility. Like there's some burrows in in the whole thing to me in terms of the way he depicted things. Yeah. And also, uh, Come to mention, I didn't thought about, but yeah, it's yeah. all everything goes into the hopper, you know. And, sure, yeah. and like uh, like who's the guy that did the work with uh, Zappa, with Bruce Bickford? Yeah, mm-hmm. like there like there was a world of of, of art. That was sort of you know mind blowing, and that was the intent of it, but didn't have to to abide by any rules. Right, like even the animation, like when I was a kid, like Wizards, like Ralph Bakshi, that you could enter an experience that could go on for an hour and a half and not have to be defined. Yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, a, a huge. Of course, I was I was um, as a kid yeah. in, influenced by you know Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien. How old were you when you saw that stuff? Uh, I saw King Kong when I was six, 1955, and uh, when I was seven, 1958, yeah. uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Right. So, like, because I remember seeing those, but they weren't new. They were already, you know, on the whatever channel it was, you know, dialing for dollars or something. But I, me- I imagine at that time, that was, they were new, right? No one had ever seen that before. Um, to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. They, they were like magic. Yeah. And it, it, there were a couple of consequences that fell off of that that I didn't realize until a lot later. Yeah. But you didn't have access to the media that you have today. So sure. it might not be another 10 years before you see that thing on a black and white TV. Yeah. And uh, that really helped all of us. You know, we, we all kind of, you know, orbit around this um, understanding that because we didn't have the access that is available today, we just made shit up on our minds. Right. You know? And, right. And, uh, so you saw it all. It was all in color on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you made shit up in your minds in terms of uh, well, just remembering what it was. Yeah, I mean, you know, we you know would only see it once. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the rest was left to our imaginations and reconstruct. No idea how to do it. Yeah, at all. And it wasn't until um, many years later that Forrest J. Ackerman, uh, who was the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Um, he was here here in L.A. He yeah. had he had his Acker Mansion. Yeah, and it was he was friends with Ray Bradbury, Ray Harryhausen, and, and uh, had tons of the the memorabilia from you know King Kong uh-huh. and Ray's stuff. Yeah, and so we were like in Pig Heaven. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So we would go over there, and um, well, that's where a lot of us met. You know, who's, who was who's us. Uh, Dennis Murin, yeah, you know, uh, uh, who went on to you know win, uh, you know, more almost as many Academy Awards as Edith Head, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, you know my other buddies, John Berg, Tom Sandemon, Ken Ralston, you know, a lot of us that you know went on to to make um, the Star Wars movies and to make that. the world, yeah. You know. <laughs> so, but but when where'd you grow up? Uh, I was born in Berkeley. So you you're like Berkeley your whole life? No, my parents. You know, captured me and made me go to San Diego. Oh man! Yeah, I was not a big fan of San Diego. Oh, um, geez. When how old were you when that happened? I was 
right after Sinbad eight nine. You You're know. in San Diego. Yeah. Oh. But the good news was, I mean, I like the beaches, and now I get skin cancer. Yeah. And um, but it put me into proximity to uh, L.A. Yeah. You know, when um, you know, when I could drive, and so that just plonked me down and doing commercial work in Hollywood. Did you, but when we were a kid, were you trying out to, when did you start working with the uh, the stop motion stuff? Like, because that's something one of those, it seems that even with kids who have access to like a, a Super 8 projector, uh, film camera that they start, that seems like some of the first stuff that people do when they try to make movies. Oh, absolutely. I mowed yeah. lawn and hacked up ice plant to get a single frame camera. Yeah. And probably around 12 started goofing around with stop motion animation. And, you know, I, I just, I did a lot of tricks, you know. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, I did jerry-rig things so I could look at things one frame at a time, which you couldn't do on a on a projector. And um, So you're a little possessed. I was possessed, yeah. <laughs> and my parents were worried about me. <laughs> really? Well, my, my, my mom was, yeah. you know, as moms are. And she wanted to go to a therapist, take me to a therapist. Yeah. And um, my dad was against that because he was an artist. Uh-huh. And um, he had a library of books, and he knew that I was in interested in monsters. And what kind of artist was he? He was a weekend um, abstract expressionist. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, tried to get into the game, taught me a valuable lesson because uh, he couldn't stand rejection. Uh-huh. You know, and as a kid, I realized, well, if you can't stand rejection, <laughs> yeah. you know, you better get out. Right. Um, you did realize that. Yeah. Uh, eventually, I did. I mean, it, it sunk in, but he showed me uh, uh, books on uh, Hieronymus Bosch and sure. Peter Bruegel and oh, yeah. his son. And, you know, it's like all these things. Things just, with me, everything takes a long time to gestate. Yeah. And um, eventually, at some point, I went like, God, you know, I want to make a Peter Bruegel movie at some point. I'd love, to, or, or a Hieronymus Bosch. Well, you I know? mean, you definitely, you definitely achieved that. Well, he had, Bosch had both this sense of uh, diabolical horror and whimsy to yes, them. You right. You know, which was, like, you know, uh, I was always very attracted to. To whimsy and diabolical horror yeah, happening simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I recently saw the Bosch paintings. I was at the, the, the Prado, I think mm -hmm. is where they are. And, and you, you know, when you see those in a book or something, it's one thing. But when you stand before them, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Again, because... There's something about engaging with the surface too, and seeing the paint and everything else. Yep. It's a, it's it's the same effect that I, I was sort of talking about when I watched your film. That I don't know that I ever had the the visceral reaction to stop motion because in the film, I mean, this thing it's 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 kind of it's it's covered with you know sludge and decay and blood and goop and hair and <laughs> you know like there's a lot of stuff that that you can just feel it you know when you see it, so. In starting to do that kind of stuff, I mean, if that was what compelled you when you were, were that young, what was the process to getting, I mean, how, I mean, obviously this took a long time to make, but what was your experience? How did you get into the business? Well, before I got into the business, yeah. you know, I, you know, I collected mentors and the first mentor I had was Ray Bradbury, who I carried on a uh, correspondence with. You just reached out to him? You wrote uh, him a letter? I was working on a, a guy's 16-millimeter low-budget um, 
uh, version of his short race short story, yeah. Sound of Thunder. Yeah. The Tyrannosaurus Rex time travel deal. Yeah. And um, he was speaking at a junior college, and I went down there and gave him the script and showed yeah. him some pictures, and he wrote back. And said, you know, if you make any money off of this, I'm going to sue you. And, but that that started a long conversation of uh, of letters. You know, uh-huh. we wrote back and forth for years. You and, and I lost them all. You did. You know, I you know, in subsequent moves, as yeah, a, you know, idiot. And um, but in the '60s, you know, Ray's um, Ray's rant was love, love, love. Yeah. You know, do what you love because. If you fail at that, you'll be in a better place than if you um, did not even try. And or fail at something you didn't want to do anyways. Yeah. And didn't know. You know, you didn't even know what you could you could reach to. And that, you know, uh, coincided with my, at the same time, my dad, you know, not being able to, you know, oh, uh, I don't know. You know, I get rejected all the time. Oh, right, you right, know? right, right. So, so he, your dad was afraid. Yeah. And and because of that, he didn't. Well, and, you know, I give him, you know, a lot of rope for that because he was a victim of the 50s. Yeah. And, and you're, you're, you know, kind of forced into a corridor of being, you know. And so, you know, it's, it, it is so difficult for many people that want to, you know, raise a family mm. to, um, yeah, sure. you know, do that. Well, yeah, well, that was the ideal, right? Yeah. So you're working. I mean, that was the norm or the expectation that had to be broken in the 60s by the next generation that was the pushback on that yeah about, around absolutely. those those expectations yeah that was me you know and that was you know it was like you know bosch and king kong and yeah. whatnot but then in the in the you know 60s you know i was uh you know 15 or so yeah and bob dylan you know had switched from um Folk to electric. F- folk, you know, yeah. to the more surrealistic, you know, kind of collage yeah. stuff. Yeah. And that was like, holy shit. You know, I didn't think about it at the time, but it was like, you know, eventually when I started thinking about Mad God, you know, I wanted to do something that was a lot more collage, poetic-like. Yeah, you know? sure. And and do you think that looking back, do you believe that your father had talent? Mm. No. Not particularly. So, <laughs> so, so even if he had the courage <laughs> yeah. to face rejection, well, he was he, probably smarter to stay he in his was, fear. He was rejected for you know a reason. Although you never know how anything goes, you throw shit at the wall and yeah. You know. So this when so when you're communicating with Ray Bradbury, how old are you? Is that when you're in your teens? Yeah, probably and, around sixteen or so. And you know his his thing was love, love, love. And so in our, our in our correspondence, you know. Uh, as the nomenclature changed over the years, you know, it would go from love, love, love to follow your bliss to this and sure, that and the sure. other thing. And then it turned up being uh, follow your passion. Mm. So I looked up the word in passion and it comes from the Latin patai, which of course means to suffer. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like know yeah. Jesus on the cross. Sure. Oh, the passion of Christ. Yes. Yeah. And, oh, and that is all the creative people that I know, that is their world. You know, they follow their passion, they suffer for it. Yeah. Why do we do that? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is you're 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 consumed, you know. Right, and, right. You have you in your mind you have no choice. Well, it's like um I mean the paths uh, that that I took were was very similar to um Carl Jung. Yeah. Uh, um 
uh, wrote this book over 16 years without anybody being aware of it yeah. uh, called The Red Book. Oh, uh-huh. And Tashin had, had put it out, and it's really worth getting. It's, yeah. it's really fantastic. Huh. It's got all these beautiful you know, paintings with gold and everything. Mandela and, paintings kind uh, of stuff? Hmm? Mandela paintings? or the No, no, Mandela? it's more very re- religious. Oh, okay. Uh, but there are Mandela things yeah. in it. And um, beautiful calligraphy in, you know, Gothic German uh-huh. and everything. And so uh, he wrote this uh, for the better part of 16 years. Yeah. And it was essentially, it was, I, when I read this, I was halfway through Med God and I realized, yeah, oh, this happens to a lot of people, you know. And it was the, the classic um, Campbell hero's journey. You know, sure. as a creative person, you uh, you don't know what you're going to do, sure. you know, but you want you want to find a what, and you go down this path, and that leads to another path, leads to another path, and leads to another path, and, yeah. and you get lost. Sure, and uh, for uh, you know, uh, Young got lost. Young got and, lost, and yeah. his his family, you know, had to pull him out of it. No you kidding. Know? And he, he worked on this thing for 16 years. I like to believe they sent him to a psychiatrist. That would, that would be great. <laughs> Not a Jungian therapist. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, but it, what's interesting to me also is that, you, you know, you obviously, alongside of, of, you know, gestating and then kind of manifesting Mad God that went on to take, you know, years and years, you, you, were, you were kind of doing your job in another way, but engaging the same creative passion, right? Eh, yeah, that was living the dreams of a child out, you know. So to, when when does that start happening? When what's the next search for mentors? Like who do you go to from? Oh Ray? God, you know, uh, I um, San Diego put me in pros- proximity to Hollywood. You yeah. know, I w- would went to the only uh, place that did stop motion work, a special effects company called Cascade Pictures of you know Hollywood. Where was that at? Seward and Romaine. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And you just show up as a kid, or what did you do? Well, I got in there as a 16-year-old. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I met the guys, and they could see that I had talent. So uh-huh. once I, you know, I started doing some stuff when I was 16, and I went to UC Irvine. What to, were they working on there? Pillsbury Doughboy, Grawley, Charlie Green Giant, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ford, Chrysler commercials, all that stuff. You were, you were there for that? Yeah, yeah, for, for Mrs. The, Mrs. Butterworth. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, so like the like when she pokes the Pillsbury Doughboy and he goes, hee hee. You were, you saw that happen? I saw it. I was not a proficient animator at that time, so but I mostly were, made models and did sculptures and things like that. Jelly Green Giant, because he was like, he was half human, wasn't he? Yeah, he was all human. This guy in a green outfit <laughs> until it turns into a cartoon. <laughs> and uh, and what are, it's so funny because those are the commercials from my kids. From when I was a kid? It was a great school because the turnover was really fast. You know, uh-huh. it was my graduate school. And you could do this, you could do that, you could try. And we had a great mentor, Phil Kellison, ran the place. And, you know, he, he let the lunatics loose a lot. And we could stay there, you know, uh, after hours on the weekend to work on our own projects. And So this one you were like in your teens? Uh, probably mostly after I graduated from UC Irvine because oh, so, okay. I, I had to deal with the draft. So you went back to that place. You you started there when you were in high school, and and uh, you know, right after high school, I got a few like little kind of gigs. Yeah. But I worked for this guy Gene Warren, uh, who is uh, really cheap, and he pay- paid me. Um, 
minimum wage because I was 16 and yeah. I, I got like a, a dollar and 10 cents an hour. Wow. <laughs> you know? What was he working on? Oh, Gene uh, did all kinds of things. They they did uh, Projects Unlimited, did the H.G. Wells thing, the time machine, oh, yeah, just yeah. tons and tons of stuff. Oh, interesting. And um, and then you went to UC Irvine? Went to Irvine to escape the draft. And the best thing that, that ever happened to me, or yeah. happened to me there, which was it, it when I arrived, it coincided with um, essentially the birth of conceptual art. Okay. And I was just totally taken by it. It was like, you mean you don't have to paint or sculpt, okay. you know, or, or, you know, you can do anything. Installations, performance anything. art. Anything. And, right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that was a really huge thing. And in relation to the 60s, how much were you engaging with the, the cultural momentum of that time? Were you, you know, were you going to uh, love-ins or hallucinogenics or any of that stuff? No, I just, I, there was nobody that shared my worldview. So I just stayed, you know, in my room. What was your worldview? Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> it's very specific. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. But you did, but that, but I imagine you found like-minded people when you started executing the the art, right? In working within the, the yeah, the oh, world. definitely. I mean, there were only half a dozen of us that were doing this stuff. Yeah, yeah, really. And so it was really easy to pick up gigs and stuff because yeah. you know. So after graduate school, you went to Kellison, and that's where you did the Pillsbury Doughboy and stuff. Yeah, and then and then what happens? Where'd you go after that? Um, well, at that point. Um, uh, Dennis Murin yeah. uh, and, and I were working at Cascade and Ken Ralston. They got hired to do Star Wars. Okay, so that's in the 70s. We're now we're in the 70s. The first Star Wars, yeah. Yeah. And then George wasn't happy with the material he had shot for the cantina scene in England and hired our buddy Rick Baker to pull together a group. I've interviewed Rick Baker. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, I've known him since I was 15 years old. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So they he hired him for the for the well he put uh, he hired Rick and he Rick put together a bunch of a stop motion animators uh, out of work stop motion animators together uh-huh. and we built all the costumes and we went to a little um, you know insert stage on La Brea Avenue yeah and George directed and Carol Ballard shot it and, yeah and uh, while we were working there um, uh, George would come by every every week. Uh, to check on our progress, and he saw that I uh, a stop motion puppet that I had made yeah. when, when I was um, twenty. Oh yeah, and that gave him the idea to do the chess set in in Star Wars. Right, and he was like, "Well, you got two weeks. Can you make a dozen, you know, space aliens in two weeks and shoot it?" And it was like, "Yeah," and we did it and <laughs> yeah. spent three nights doing it and staying up all night just shooting the chessboard. Yep. Oh man, the night crew, and that was and that changed it that. That was, I mean, they must have felt that the integration of, of what you do of stop motion into these big pictures again, did it feel like there was a period there where it seemed like stop motion wasn't happening? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it had kind of petered out. Right. You know, in a way. I mean, and, and that was just a result of cycles, you know. Sure. Um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of stop motion work uh, up until then, you know, mostly... You know, props are setting up, you know, different kinds of, of scenes in different commercial houses. You know, that was, yeah, we were in pig heaven doing that, but we had no idea, you know, that Star Wars was going to become Star Wars until we went to the premiere. Well, what did you think? What, what did you think you were working on? Just some sci fi movie that. Well, we're, we're always fans of, of, 
you know, George Lucas's, you know, from THX, THX and yeah. American Graffiti. Yeah. And it was like, you know, well, you know, <laughs> here, here's this guy that we, you know, he's not that much older than us. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we, we have the same you know, film education as each other so we can do that, you know, Vulcan mind mill thing. We know sure. exactly what we're talking about. Right. And, um, yeah, he was just a really terrific guy. But you had no idea this what was going to happen. Well, he had shown us the cantina scene and the chess set. Uh-huh. And it was like, wow, this is the movie you always wanted to work on. Yeah. And, um, but not until we got to the premiere. I mean... Or it was a cast and crew screening. Uh huh. That, you know. And you were like, what? And the guys at ILM that were smarter than me bought stock in Fox, you know. And, uh-huh. and I I have no idea about that. Yeah, so. me neither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but. I have to assume. So you had not no idea what the, the, the scope of the movie was. Nobody did. You just were working on your thing. Nobody did. So when you saw it all put together, oh, only George did, and and it was a Herculean task. Nobody understood what the hell he was doing. So was your experience watching the completed Star Wars similar to when you were five seeing a Harryhausen thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but different. Uh-huh. You know. Uh, yeah. You saw it, the it future was. for, I guess, for a minute. Uh, you know, my mind was spinning. I didn't see anything. Really? You know, yeah, except, yeah. Uh, you know, I wanted to see it again. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then what happens next? You go you go on, you make the, the another movie with him, right? Or do you do you stuff in between? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I went on and did, uh, you know, Piranha with Joe Dante and John Davis. What was the job on Piranha? What did you have to do? Make those uh, We fish? made a bunch of rubber fish. Yeah. And, and John and, uh, and, you know, so we shot in the L.A. Swim Stadium and came up with these rigs where we pulled these things underwater and went to um, San Marcos, Texas and shot there, you know, in the in the giant pond that was the source of the San Marcos River, which was really fucking scary. Yeah. Because there were huge alligator gar that were like 10 feet long that were there. And, um, wow. and they got those teeth, right? They have huge teeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there, there were... Um, crawdads that were the size of lobster it was like the lost world it was really fantastic and water moccasins and you know all kinds of fun stuff those are the scariest things to me things in the water (sighs) yeah and that's where you did the piranha we did some stuff there but most of it was in the la swim i remember that is those the ones jumping out of the water and put biting off chunks of face that was probably piranha two or oh, three D. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. of ours were really cheap. They were just all under the water. Oh. It's just flurries of blood. Yeah. <laughs> bubbles. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> yeah, aqualon yeah. bubbles being the bubbling and stuff. And but Joe and, and John were big fans of stop motion. Uh-huh. So uh, the, they had me put in like a little character uh, for uh, half a dozen shots or something, you know, in just Doctor Hook's laboratory, Hoke's laboratory. Uh-huh. Kevin McCarthy played Doctor Hoke. So how does it, how does things change from Star Wars to Empire? Well, during that period, um, you know, I was working with the the associate producer Jim Bloom, who was down here in L.A., and yeah. I, I was living in Silver Lake, and. You know, we got into like kind of negotiating and whatnot. They just said. I don't want to negotiate. <laughs> Just yeah. give me whatever you got, and I'll do it. 
So George hired me to do, uh, there's this character at the opening of Empire, this uh, two-legged kind of dinosaur camel-like thing called yeah. the Tauntaun. Yeah. And uh, he asked me to do some, come up with some ideas for it. And so I spent a day just, you know, it could be this, could be that, it could be this, could be that. Mm. Picked one and said, can you make a three-dimensional maquette? Uh, and uh, I did. And he said, okay, that's it. You know? That's it. Yeah. And that's, that's the way he worked. You know, I found him much more like, he wasn't one of these, he wasn't a micromanager at all. Yeah. You know, he hired people that knew more than he did. You yeah. know, he would go like, well, you're, no, you're a monster guy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Make the monster. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he he responded very well to uh, three-dimensional things, which yeah. is what I do. So I would make maquettes, but instead of having something on paper that he had to interpret or could I see it from another angle, you know, should we put this, uh, you know, thin on that leg, which, you know, like a lot of productions do. Yeah. Um, he would be able to hold, you know, like Admiral Akbar up and, and turn it around. And it yeah. was like he could see the movie in his head, you know, sure. right there and then. And I guess you could as well. I mean, you pictured things three-dimensionally. Yeah. Well, I have this, um, apparently it's like an indication of possible autism mm. uh, where I can, as I'm talking to you, I, yeah. can't, I can't look at you, but I can see, uh, I can I can imagine a, a symmetrical box that has no scale to it, and yeah. I, I can turn it red. I can turn it blue. I can turn it white, uh -huh. like that. Oh, I see. And what what is a maquette built from? Uh, I use this uh, material called Sculpey. That's a crafts thing that you can get in any art store. That you know, um, it's it's uh, a thing that kids can make little sculptures out sure. of, and you uh, cook it. It's like clay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can cook it, and it hardens. So do you, uh, did you, like, ever, was there ever a point in your life where you thought, you know, you would be a sculptor? I was a sculptor. You know, I just, I was all self-taught, you know, sure. and all this stuff, you know. Right, right. But you didn't want to do big conceptual art pieces. You were you were uh, sculpting as as a collaborator. I only did, you know, conceptual art stuff, you know, when I was in, in college. Yeah. And I, I certainly had a lot, a, a great... Um, you know, viewport into the the art scene because I, 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 my you know uh, teachers that became my mentors, then my friends Michael Asher and uh, Bastian Otter and uh, Via Selmans, yeah. you know, were the the right at the cusp of the conceptual art movement, and they're like you know some of the gods of conceptual art. So I got to hang around them. What and, were they working on? Uh, their own projects, yeah, you know, and I was. I don't know their work. Like, uh, was it most? Was it uh, large pieces or was it performative? Mike worked with spaces, okay, and uh, did different kinds of things, ephemeral things, uh -huh. things that you wouldn't even know you were there until you spent a little bit of time, okay, or until somebody told you, hey. Did you feel that there was air going through that place you just passed through? Oh, yeah. So he was working right on the edge of perception. Okay, well, yeah. Your perceptual psychology type of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, Boss worked with emotions huh. uh, a, a lot. Uh, yeah. and, and How's uh, that? Like how? He, uh, there's one piece called I'm Too Sad to Tell You. Yeah. And uh, it's a, I don't know if he did a video of it, but it, there was a still of just him crying. Yeah. And he had written I'm Too Sad to Tell You. Huh. And um, there was something going on in his mind, yeah. you know, that we'll yeah. never know. I mean, I, uh, his, his dad was a uh, Calvinist preacher that mm. saved a lot of people from the Nazis. Huh. And um, Heavy. And uh, Boss, 
I think, always kind of felt that he was never as good as his dad or sure, something like sure. that. He'd done a great thing. And Boss ended up disappearing. Really? You know, and one of his last, a lot of his stuff was about um, danger. And he would put himself in dangerous situations, like re- riding a bicycle across a t- top of a house and falling onto the ground right, or yeah. across, a, a, you know, falling into a river or whatnot. So there was always a self destructive side yeah. to him. And he ended up disappearing. He he uh, in a fourteen foot boat uh, tried to make it across the Atlantic, and they found the boat just floating off the coast of uh, Spain, and, huh. and a um, you know gas thing uh, blew up, and they never found him again. Oh my God! And so, what were you, what was your conceptual work like at that time? It was like I did this thing uh, with video. Yeah, that, that was just like a it was like a pull up bar. Oh, that yeah. was like seven eight feet off the ground and that's all you saw on this black and white video screen yeah. was just this horizontal line that cut it and then i hired i mean hired i um provoked a bunch of the students at uc irvine for a contest yeah. and whoever can hang on this bar the longest yeah gets a six pack of beer yeah <laughs> i got a long line <laughs> and yeah. uh and so in, in the picture the 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 pull-up bar bisects the the frame uh, about one third from the top and all you see is a hand coming up and it's swinging just yeah. like this <laughs> yeah. and then it drops yeah and somebody you know like the fat people were just <laughs> you would you know just be a flash yeah and of course the you know guys sports guys won the beer sure and uh, so that was one and then i did another one that was um at uc irvine their spaces were painting studios were just terrible because they had awful echoes they were they were huge they were square yeah high ceilings and so i i i got uh, i had a reel-to-reel tape uh tape recorder yeah and i got you know um my friends uh, fellow students uh, 20 20 minute tape mm-hmm. um, to say the vowels. Yeah. A, 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 A for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And then go through all the vowels. Yeah. I did hard and soft. I had different, I could, I could have different voices, uh-huh. you know, but breath would be what, you know, the, the would establish the rhythm. Sure. And um, so then I got all of the reel-to-reel tape recorders that I could find at Irvine and uh, got sculpting pedestals and put them in this square space uh, four feet off the wall. Yeah. And um, turned them on. Yeah. And depending upon upon the proximity of where you were to the tape recorder, yeah, uh, you know, A would be stronger or U would be stronger, sure. yeah, depending upon where you were. And they were all uh, put out in the in the configuration of a pentagram. But because, and I I didn't plan any of this stuff like everything else I do is like I um, in the center of the space because of the acoustics of the space everything mixed yeah and it sounded like some kind of a weird alien or proto-human language you know yeah and it was like that was really cool you know it's almost like uh, uh, alchemy yeah, like uh, like you 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 manifested something through the ritual. Didn't of putting... didn't know, right? Yeah, like yeah, a yeah. demon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wild. And so man. you know, everybody thought I had a really great career in in art, but I just the art scene was not for me. You know, um, yeah. it was just too political. I'd hang out with Mike Asher and 
John Baldessari and, yeah. you know, those guys. And, you know, well, they just talked about the art racket. And I, I saw. It's you know, weird. Right? I dated an artist. It's horrendous. Yeah. I, it's, it's like, look, show business is show business, but there's something fundamentally disingenuous about the art world. Yeah. And then you're alone, you know. Yeah. And, and I always like working with people you yeah, know, and a yeah. team, you know, because I am by default a, a loner and spend a lot of time alone which i prefer but then you know working with other people makes me you know civilized well yeah yeah and i and i and it's it's nice to be able to to be a collaborator and be part of something bigger than yourself i you don't strike me as a religious man um no not overtly you know, yeah but mad god kind of skewed that way one way or the other mad god did well yeah, in 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 regard to it being that hero's journey kind sure, of thing, you sure. can't talk think think about it in any other way as like having some kind of you know profound meaning for you. I mean, it put me in the psych ward for a few days. I mean, it fucking broke me. You know, I what just, year was that? It was like just about the year that I finished it. You know, and recently. I, oh no, this must have been. Three, four years ago, when I finished it. When you finished Mad God, yeah, it was right at the right at the tail end, and I, I still had there. I got other ideas, so I went on. But it, um, yeah, it um, it really popped my cork, and I was like at this place where, um, totally unbeknownst to me, yeah, my friends told me later I was disintegrating. Yeah, I look like a homeless person, you know, and my, really? yeah, my hair was long. I had a huge beard. You know, my clothes were torn and covered with paint. Yeah. And uh, my hands were all banged up from, you know, working with, with tools and whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, it was like hunched over and, you know, they were really surprised to, you know, when I, I heard, you know, they heard me say, I hate this. I fucking hate working on this. You know, it's just... Like getting behind the mule and and you know doing penance, and um, you know so it was. What happened in the psych ward? Well, the food was terrible, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I stayed away from everybody. Yeah, yeah, you know, but it took me the better part of six weeks to recover. You know, I the, for the first seventy-two hours, I just sat in front of the TV and. Um, my adrenaline was just going so fast, you know, I, I, I just couldn't do anything. And eventually, you know, I'd get up and walk around the room, then go out and walk down the block, then go around the yeah, block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I built myself back up. But but so this was, but did you experience any of this? I mean, how, when did you start working on Mad God? What year was that? Uh, it was right after RoboCop 2 in the late 80s. So you were still like that was the heyday of what you know before I get into this though can you tell me the difference between stop motion and go motion stop motion is taking a uh three-dimensional object and yeah. infinitesimally moving it one frame at a time right uh but when you take that picture it's a very clear um like a still photograph yeah uh, but you know, when you shoot a horse or, or a human, whatever that are moving through the frame, you get this characteristic motion blur yeah. on it. And so animators have been trying, tried to, you know, uh, affect that for a number of years, but you know, it was too cumbersome and this, the, it wasn't very successful. Yeah. But when we were, when the first time I went to, into ILM, Dennis and Ken were working on the night crew. Yeah. Um, I saw the motion control, you know, equipment that John Dykstra had developed, and it was like, you know, if you could combine a stop motion puppet with this stuff, 
you you could possibly do it. And so when we moved up to Marin, um, San Rafael, uh, Ken Ralston and I uh, pulled out the only puppet I had at that time was the one that I did from Piranha. Yeah, and we hooked that up. Afternoon, we shot a test, and it worked. So you get a different kind of flow, different kind of continuity. You get you get motion blur right with the thing. It was very very you know just on one axis, and um, but that went on to a much more elaborate thing for the movie Dragon Slayer, where we essentially made a computerized you know Boonraku kind of a puppet thing. Huh. It's so the engineering of this stuff is so much part of it. Technology the, changes everything. Yeah. And so John Dykstra, you know, uh, he what was the machine he had created? It was this motion control oh, okay. where you could primarily for cameras. Okay. You know, where you could repeat moves. Yeah. Multiple moves. Oh, I get it. Okay. And uh, but it was, you know, every time the technology changes, the brain has to yeah, has to change. And um was the go motion that's what was used basically for Jurassic Park? No, no, no. That was all computer graphics. Oh my god! That was the first big. You know, ILM had done uh, Young Sherlock and the Terminator movies, but this was the first time they were able to put you know actual skin on something that looked like a thing. Oh, okay. But so RoboCop was Go Motion. Uh, I wasn't working at ILM, and they had all the uh, the. I had my own studio by yeah. that time. So, yeah, I didn't have access to that kind of equipment, but I, I was able to fake it for some shots okay. by stupid ways, like, you know, uh, driving a uh, a wedge underneath some two-by-fours and wiggling the table and stuff like that, you know, for, for certain <laughs> yeah, kinds of yeah, things. So, yeah. so because, like, I'm just looking at, like, when you start, when you start Mad God, that's like, you said 1990? Around then, yeah. Because that seems to sync up with the with the technology changing. Yeah, right around that time. Yeah, and in in the sense that like because the, the, it seems the big difference between stop motion and go motion and whatever evolved into CGI was that that you you lose the human seams that 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 kind of come through. Like you you know there's something still organic and and filmic and that depends on who you are. Okay, doing it. Yeah. You know, uh, and um, I mean, for Dragon Slayer, yeah, you know, because we were working with these sixteen axes, you know, motors, yeah, uh, you know, we're driving this thing instead of like sculpting in time mm -hmm. and, and light with stop motion. I had to build up things because they were all in all these axial movers, axes by axes by axes. Okay, you know, so you had to just completely visualize it in your mind, the performance, and go through and I mean it wasn't programming like typing but right. they, they had like these controls that would move the motors around and whatnot okay. you know so so you're just, one almost one step removed from setting the things up and, not not in my mind but right yeah <laughs> but in, in actual tactile right. engagement yeah so do you think that for the beginning of Mad God did you have a series of uh, visions or imagination ar around you know these vin almost vignettes these pieces of of this you know, uh, apocalyptic story. Do you think that some of it was a reaction to uh, almost to to that type of creation being left behind? Do you know, like it seemed like the end of stop, like CGI comes, mm -hmm. so stop action. It's sort of like done. Mm, yeah. Well, on Jurassic Park, 
I was over emotional about it. Okay. You know, and the the younger computer graphic guys that were coming in were kind of like the young gunslingers. Sure, and sure. so there was that whole kind of weird vibe going on. And uh, yeah, I, I just got, you know, over emotional and I got pneumonia. I had to go to bed for a couple of weeks. Uh-huh. And, um, and so it was up to, you know, uh, my wife, Jules, who ran yeah. the company and um, Dennis Murin and Craig Hayes who yeah. designed the Ed 209 robots and the Starship Troopers yeah. features came up with this input device. It was essentially a stop motion animator that, uh, an, uh, armature that fed into the computer. And so a stop motion animators could do yeah, their work, do that because the computer graphics guys were not um, up to that level yet. In terms of movement. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Well, they had done, there was only one place that taught computer graphics really in North America, and that was uh, Sheridan in Canada. Uh-huh. And so all of those guys were schooled in Disney, you know, um, classic animation, squash and st- stretch and flying logos and all that stuff. Uh-huh. But it's a different thing, you know. I mean, too, too many moving parts with putting a creature into a shot. You know? Uh huh. So, but like, so do you think that some of it was driven by fuck you? No. Like, you no. know, like, I'm going to, t- I, you, <laughs> I, I, I will destroy you. Yeah. I have complete <laughs> control. This is my world. No. Where did, uh, where did the uh, kernel of it come from? The well, I mean, again, like I just have relied and sought out mentors all of my life. Yeah. And uh, one just happened to cross my path that, you know, my wife was in the editorial department of Amadeus. Uh-huh. And so we'd go hang out, have dinner with uh, Milos Foreman. Oh, yeah. As a young filmmaker i'd ask him if he would give me any advice yeah gave me the best advice i ever got which is what allowed me you know i mean once i kind of got it and started thinking about mad god uh was if you want to take a good shit you have to eat well (laughs) and it was like you know i mean that that told me you know that's a milos warman quote yeah that's like (laughs) it's like you take your time with stuff you let it cook yeah you don't do it on a hollywood production schedule yeah yeah you know you you take as many years as you like sure and um unbeknownst to me i mean mad god took me 30 years to to, 30 yeah 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 I, i i shot in the you know late 80s um about three minutes and then realized that the scope and scale was too big. And I lost my RoboCop crew to Henry Selleck that was doing Nightmare Before Christmas. And, and so I put it to bed. Yeah. But that didn't stop me thinking about it. And what was it What what was it you were trying to, like, in your mind, what is the story? Let me put it this way. <laughs> <laughs> um Pablo Picasso was asked once in yeah. an interview um, what he was looking for in his um, in his paintings. Yeah, he said, "I do not seek; I find." Right, and that's what artists do. You know, a- ask an artist, "What are you doing?" It was like, "How did I know what was going to happen with those tape projects?" Sure, and right. So, you, but I guess what I'm asking is, were you thinking in vignettes? Primarily in terms of like, because there's a lot going on. It's 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 quite a hellscape, and you, you know there it, and there it suggests a lot of things. You know, none of them necessarily about a bright future, 
or or you know wherever that that put that place is that the film takes place in or number of places there's just a lot of machines there's 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 figures that that get smashed that get burned that get thrown in holes then there's your your there's a couple of heroes these goggled beings uh so i guess what i'm asking is do you think in sort of like well i'm going to have this these giant metal pylons crushing guys and i'm going to have a hole and that's and that's the thought and then you integrate it after you know, it, it's like a combination of a whole bunch of things, uh-huh. depending upon what comes to me at, at the moment. Yeah. You know, initially, um, starting with those first three minutes, yeah. Yeah, then the next 20 years where I just I just didn't let it go. I have no idea why I didn't. But between gigs and on the weekends and whatnot, I do storyboards, design characters, uh-huh. and we just start building the, up this idea and um, was able to get, based on the first, three you know um minutes yeah uh you know i i produced a i got did a kickstarter and produced another um uh but you know 15 minutes or so did you ever try to get you know on the you know legit showbiz financing no no i've been through that plenty of times before and i would always gotten with things that i tried to make conventional uh the you know thousand yard stare after like five seconds right from studio it'd be hard to pitch this one <laughs> well, all of my stuff, John Davison and Newmeyer, yeah. you, know, you know, informed me uh, that you know all my stuff was art damaged. <clears throat> what does that mean? Art art movies don't make money. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Okay. So yeah, 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 yeah. So because, like, as I said before, <laughs> there there is something about like it really is an art movie, and it really is a, a masterpiece of what you, you know what you do. I think you know in 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 that form. And what what's amazing is that you have all of these things in, in when you try to sort of focus on you know what they're made of or what what the construction is, they they all uh, they all bring out human feelings, which is I guess the effect that you want that through all of it. I guess. <laughs> you know? No, but like, you know, even all the figures, you know, when you see a figure that, you know, is barely human, you know, get you know thrown in a burning hole, you, it has, you have a human response to it. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Just the, the, the ongoing, the never endingness of it. Yeah. Yeah. But when you began that first three minute one, did you see, we've talked about Joseph Campbell and about Young here and about the hero's journey. You know, what was the journey? Were you able to identify it? Or were you just sort of flying blind and just reacting to your, your visions? Again, you know, go back to other artists. Yes. You know, when you look at the the um, equivalent of reviews with Bach, or, Beethoven, or Mozart. Yes. You know, when they're asked how they do their thing, they say, I just transcribe it, you know? Yeah. And it comes from God, you know? And it was, it was like that. It was, know? yeah, okay. Yeah. It was just like there was a tuning fork that, like, you know, kind of tuned me in. You know, I was just following. Did it stay constant or come in and out over 30 years? It was so slow. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't, you know. Because the it process was, of making it is slow, right? By default. Right. Yeah. So did you have the full vision and then you know, no. have to spend time? Absolutely not. No, but with any piece of it, did you have to? Because it seems to me that, like, you'll have these these pieces of it and then you got to spend, what, Six months making it? Well, it depended yeah. because I did have these three minutes of material that were kind of parts of it that were spread out before I actually had a narrative. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really have a story per se, but- um, 
movement. It, well, it's got a it's got a through line to sure. it, you know, sure. and um, but not a conventional narrative, right? And, uh, and so um, I I took some of these first images that I, I did, you know, uh, years ago, and I was archiving them. And some of the guys at my studio that were inspired by watching the making of Star Wars and RoboCop and stuff wanted to do that kind of stuff and light miniatures and stuff with real lights. And, you know, that era had long gone and they yeah. were computer graphics artists and they saw me, you know. Um, Laboring away. Well, no, uh, you know, archiving this three minutes. Yeah. And they go, what the hell is that? You yeah. know, and they thought it was some long lost, you know, something or other. Oh, yeah, right. And um, and so they got really excited and they offered to do a shot. And uh -huh. so I, I, I rebuilt one of the crumbling puppets, the main character that we call the assassin. Uh-huh. And um, um, I, I showed him to, you know, here's how I built a set. Yeah, yeah. Here's how I light it and, you know, go for it. And they did a really good shot. And um, it just went on from there. Can we do another one? Sure. And um, then so I was, they're having a good time. Oh, they're in pig heaven. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I would give talks at like local Pacific Film Archive, and students, you know, um, college and high school students yeah. would would volunteer, and uh, I would get as many as fifteen people on Saturdays, you know, to work. Uh, to, yeah, and so I would spend Sundays figuring out all the processes because a lot of these people never used an exacto blade before in their <laughs> right. lives, and they found out really quick. You yeah, know? yeah. And uh, and so I'd figure out the process: do this first, do this second, do this third, do this third. and um, yeah, we just did it like that. So I imagine there's a lot of people, like a whole generation of people, that had this experience with you. You know, working on this, you know, this this epic vision you had that would never have gotten the opportunity to do that kind of work before. It probably changed their entire perception. Well, yeah, I mean, but it starts like this. It starts with you know, fifteen people, sure, and of course, yeah. you know, it yeah. just like it, it shrinks down to you know, you know, between ten and a half a dozen. And there was one one set, you yeah. know, where the assassin is driving his his car. Mm. It's like a German command car through these mountains of dead army guys. Yeah. <laughs> and that was like thousands and thousands of uh, little thirty, you know, six scale army men. Yeah, that I I showed these guys. We do this, you do that, you build this, and you build that, and you melt these army guys, and you put it on it. <laughs> that that set took three years to make. Oh my god! Yeah. They, so you you bought army guys and melted them? Tons of them. <laughs> bags and bags of army men. Wow. Which I always loved doing as a kid. Yeah, melting army men. Yeah. <laughs> so at what point do you like go into the final? You know, the the last stages of Mad God. I mean, like, because like the, if it took thirty years, and obviously you're telling me that some of these sets take a year to build or more, right? Mm -hmm. So and it was stop and go, right? So like, what made you kind of like I gotta fucking finish this? Um, passion, yeah, in the worst sense. <laughs> <laughs> I was suffering. And when you finished it, did you were you did you get any relief or just go right to the hospital? No, I mean there was, you know, the, the Mad God was never done. You know, 
Sure, it could it, go. It seemed it could go on forever. Well, you know, it's like you know, any any artist is a great story of. Um, you know, don't want to go off track, but yeah. you're just never done. You know, sure. and uh, you work right up to the wire. And I had to get kicked off of it. I, you know, uh, by who? Producers, you know, Mad God. Well, uh, producers on Mad God, where I was the producer of it. Yeah, and I didn't. That meant I didn't have to listen to anybody about money. Sure, you know, and uh, but the producers came in when it came to marketing and all of that stuff, and making yeah. sure that it would get to Shutter at the right time so that this would happen, and um, uh, and so yeah, up until like. You know, what was it? The cutoff date. Um, the sound designers, I was so lucky to get um, Dan Wool, who I'd met through Alex Cox and, and, and Richard Beggs. Is that guy still around, Alex Cox? He was in Mad God. He was the only human character in it. It was, it was kind of a flashback in the middle of the thing. Yeah. Where there's this castle being attacked by zombies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's the guy in the castle. Oh, okay, okay. Wow. Okay. So we've been friends for years and yeah. tried, tried to develop stuff. And um, he'd work with the composer Dan Wool, who um, mostly did kind of uh, Sergio Leone type things for for um, him uh, because you know, he uh, liked to make Alex liked to make like these Western kind of things. Sure. But I discovered that Dan was a lot more kind of experimental, like I am. Yeah. And you know, uh, more ambient, and was willing to take like these huge risks. And I had the I had the bass player, player Klaus Floride, that uh, w- was the bass player for the Dead Kennedys, trying yeah. to do some stuff, and it was just too much on the nose. And um, and uh, but Dan works with you know a lot of like counterpoint and uh-huh. is much more artistic. And then I was just like you know again through Alex um, was able to rope in uh, Richard Beggs, you know, the sound designer who goes back to Apocalypse. It's nowadays Academy yeah. Awards, and it was like they just saw this unique thing that was like, you know, if you guys do it, I won't bug you <laughs> at all. You know, yeah. I, I don't know what you do. I, you know, I don't micromanage people at all. Sure. And if we're spotting something, I'd go like, yeah, it'd be kind of, you know, I'd like this and like that and like that, you know, but do your version of it, you know. And, yeah. And that was about it, you know. And it all came together. Yeah. So are you now? So after it's done, after you wrap it and it's it's gone off to uh, to Shutter, which is what is that a horror network primarily? Yes, and this is not a horror film. No, but this is where it's going to go. They want to go on Netflix, <laughs> right? But are you doing any theatrical screenings? Yeah, I just saw the list today, and there's a shitload of them. Because I think that'd be amazing to see it like that. I just like I just loved it. I loved the. Where did you it. see it? Is it a screener? Yeah, screen. Oh, you got to see it big. It, I know. It, it was built for the big screen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I got to do that. So like after everything's done, how what's the window of time before you got to go to the hospital? Um, I wasn't done, you know, so I just had to get better oh, and okay. then I I could start kind of fresh again, you know, yeah. and go like, "Oh, no, I need to do this. This will make, if I sure. do this, this will make a lot more sense. Did they tell you anything you didn't know about yourself at the hospital? Was there a diagnosis? Was there? No, no, uh-huh. just like cracked up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So now with, um, did you have any? Oh, well, no, there is a side to that. And yeah. uh, I actually. 
after I had cracked up, I was working on some other stuff yeah. you know, that I wanted to do. And it was like, uh, it was the scene where these these two children, blonde-haired children, yeah. uh, come in as uh, terrorists and they set a bomb and they blow up this wall. Yeah. And so, you know, it was like, oh, I, I need to motivate the city blowing up. So I, I got to do this. And I built this big wall yeah. and, you know, started... Uh, Oh, I'm gonna, you know, do a Jasper Johns on this wall. Sure. Like, no. Uh, you know, next day I come in and gonna do Robert Rauschenberg. No. Sure. Next day, uh, it's gonna be Ed Keenholz. No. And then I would just keep building the stuff out, and um, I was like, okay, it's you know enough today. I'm gonna go home, and it was like open the door, the stage, and it was like, oh, I forgot my, you know, wallet, and you go back in, and you, you walk past this thing. And you go like, oh, you know what? And then like two hours later, you're yeah, still yeah. there working on yeah, it yeah, yeah. over and over and over. Oh. And, you know, I, I realized, you know what? This is not normal, <laughs> you right, know, yeah. for a human being. But I'd existed this way all of my life. Yeah. And so I went home and lo looked up, went online and looked up bipolar. And it was like every tick oh, mark. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Yeah. And call, you know, call up a psychiatrist and... um. I am diagnosed as unipolar. Yeah. I don't get depressed unless there's a really fucking good reason to get yes. depressed. But I'm manic, and that's what blew my gasket. You know, sure, really, yeah, yeah. Was I just could not stop? Yeah, you know, yeah. And um, the only way I could stop myself was by self medicating with um, alcohol. Yeah, which did not help. You know, my brain popping. Yeah, but you know, I just had to at the end of the day. <laughs> put right you know, brakes right. on but now there's medication that deals with that you know really successfully nice so, um leveled you off a bit yeah yeah so and i can actually control it i can kind of play it um that's great in that like yeah I, I can feel it coming on in the morning i take it okay and in the afternoon i can feel it and i've kind of moved into a new deal i one of the things that happened at the end of mad god was bang I lost all interest in making things with my hands. What? And I and I, I prolifically dreamed. I, I uh, was a prolific dreamer, and I used the dreams to help me figure out the Mad God narrative because there was a narrative to a bunch of my dreams. Yeah. Although oblique, but it really did inform me about you know cinematically how to construct the thing. In yeah. That, in that, you know, my my intention or, or design, such as it was, was to make these. Uh, shots that were were so detailed that it, there was no way you could really encompass the whole of it yeah um you know, in the you know three or four seconds that it was on before yeah. the next shot that had so much shit in it was it would cancel that out and right. kind of, uh, the best way i could think of affecting a dream yeah. is like just to stay in this moment like and, everywhere you look is a whole other possible world yeah, or yeah. You're, you're just like drug along, right, right, know? right, right. So, uh, yeah, that was that was intentional. Yeah, know? yeah. So, like, it's interesting when you look back on that method of working. That sort of you know compulsive, like you know, not landing on things, but putting everything in. You know, that's sort of a a, a, a kind of testament to the manic imagination. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It is. I had no idea. Yeah, huh. I've been that way all my life. That's exciting. And have you seen the movie uh, Tim's Vermeer? 
Um, yeah, I did. I did see that. Yeah, you know, remember the scene? He gets to this point where he just like throws down his whatever he's doing. Yeah, and he goes fuck, 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 fuck. I hate this. This is worse than being in a bad marriage. Yeah, I mean that's where I was at. Right know, with this thing. You know? Yeah. Oh man, I'm glad it's out of you. It's like an exorcism. <laughs> yeah, I would never do it again. <laughs> well, I, you might not have 30 years. I don't want well, to be negative. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, but I've got a. I've got. Well, I wouldn't wouldn't call it a sequel. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, no. I mean, it it can't be. It, yeah. It's like. Um, Is this the happy ending? Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully. I mean, one of my mentors yeah. was Tex Avery. Oh, great. Yeah. And so I worked with him on commercials and oh, did stuff, you? and he would show me how to, you know, work dummy sheets and stuff like that. So I went I went this next thing in in the 60s, a college buddy of mine and I were smoking dope. And I don't even remember what it was, a yeah. story or whatnot, a character. Uh-huh. But we came up with this word, this whatever it was, term Pequins Pendiquin, P-E-N-D-I-Q-U-I-N-S, apostrophe S, yeah. P-E-N-D-I-Q-U-I-N. And I have no idea what it was, but sure. it, it just stuck with me, you know, since college. And so Pequin is a character, and uh, I want it to be more like a uh, 1940s, you know, Tex Avery, Chuck Jones kind of cartoon. No, stop motion thing, yeah. you know, like Mad God. But, oh, yeah. you know, as the, you know, they say the canary sings one song. And so, it, uh, you know, I'll try and I w- I'll, I'll be good. You know, I'll make a, a, a version of it. If anybody lets me, that will be, have like gore and stuff in it. But yeah. I'll design it in such a way that that can be cut out, you know, so uh-huh. they can, it can be presented because I've got to look for money. Sure. And these things cost a lot of money. So, um, yeah, we'll see. And do you... Since you've sort of gotten a handle on the the mental thing, do you uh, are, do you um, what, how's your your uh, like? Because it feels that Mad God as funny and and dark and and uh, uh, I just like all the, that. There's all this like you know decay and and goop and things, but it's it's bleak. You know, it's the zeitgeist. Sure. Of today, yeah, you know, you can't avoid the void. And that's you know? right, right. So this 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 sequel in your head, is it? Oh, it's much more playful. Okay, you know, it's very, hopefully, a little bit. No, it's pretty boilerplate. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's really a hero's journey. Oh, you good. Know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I tell you, I just I as a guy who doesn't, uh, you know, I'm not a, a sci-fi nerd or, or an animation guy. I really enjoyed it, and I and I and it felt like. A deep, rich, you know, it just it felt like a life's work kind of thing, and yeah. and, and and it it it, it resonated with me. I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. Thanks, no, I appreciate that. You know, when when we, I mean, I was a nervous wreck when it was premiered in uh, Switzerland at Locarno, and um, the composer Dan Wool and I would, yeah. would would our 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 uh, hobby was to sit at the back of theaters and watch how many people would walk out. Yeah. And we had just no idea. I was like really nervous. And we sat at the back, and there was a mom and dad, and um, a seven-year-old and five-year-old yeah. little, little blonde boy. And you know, I told the mom, you know, I wouldn't bring my kids to see this. Yeah. And then, like, it wasn't more than like 
you know, 30 seconds in, you know, they got up to leave and said, you were right. And we're like, yeah, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> How did it go over, though, in general? Oh, God, it just took off. Really? Yeah, Great. Yeah, it, it was just um, exponential, you know, and it, it just hasn't stopped. I mean, it's it's found its audience. I have no idea if there's a bigger audience, except I do have some faith that, you know, because of the state of things and the so-called content which is just hot air you yeah. know means nothing sure um that if you make something unique you know if you build a better mousetrap the world will you know beat a path to your door sure and we'll see you well, know i have no idea yeah you know? and we'll get uh, i'll get those uh the theatrical release dates and stuff and uh yeah it was, it was great talking to you it really was yeah I, it was I, fun i appreciate I, you I, I i you know Time just flew by. Cool, man. And I knew all the answers. <laughs> it's all it's all you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Phil. Okay. That was uh, me and and uh, Phil Tippett. Again, the 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 film Mad God is streaming on Shutter, which you can subscribe to on its own or as part of AMC Plus. It starts streaming June sixteenth, but there's going to be a theatrical release starting this week, Friday, June tenth. Screenings all over the country. Go to madgodmovie.com. Here's some uh, some uh, guitar that I'm, you know, I I, I, don't know, I keep doing it. <laughs>